Hello and welcome to the Connecting Minds podcast. My name is Christian Jordanov. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today on the podcast, I have Dr. Scott Jensen. He's a physician and a former Minnesota state senator. He's also now running to be the next governor of Minnesota. So as you can imagine, a very busy guy, which is why I'm so honored and grateful that he slotted us in on our humble little podcast here, Connecting Minds. Uh, what I like about Dr. Jensen is that He's not afraid to call out the lies and corruption that have been happening the, over the past year with this COVID-related pandemic, all the lockdowns, the death reporting, the lies there, um, the inefficacy of certain measures, again, like the lockdowns, the face masks, and other Orwellian goings on. So a short episode, but a highly informative and very important one that you not only listen and really try to digest, but also share with other people. Because as Dr. Jensen points out uh, on the episode, we need to hold some people accountable for what they did to us over the past year. It's definitely, in my opinion, a crime that has been perpetrated against humanity. And we need to educate ourselves a little bit more, not just take what the media tells us at face value, whether it's around measures or what the actual death toll numbers are and so on and so forth. But enough from hearing it from me. Why don't you uh, hear it from a physician that's been a doctor for 35 plus years. He really knows his stuff and he has the credibility and the knowledge that I think would be a little bit more persuasive than if you heard it from me, for example. So uh, yeah, there's links to Dr. Jensen's website and his social media in the episode show notes as well as on the website. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe. Uh, you can also watch the interview on YouTube. Please share this with a friend. I think this is one of the m most important episodes that we need to share because I know that a lot of these social media algorithms are not too friendly to topics like this. Um, but let's see, let's see how it goes. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much again for joining us today. Uh, and without further ado, here is Dr. Scott Jensen. Today on the Connecting Minds podcast, I have Dr. Scott Jensen. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Jensen. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Christian. Can you briefly give the folks a little bit about your background? What do you do? I'm a small town boy. I grew up in a town in Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. I was the middle child of five. My dad was my hero, but sort of a hard man to get to know. And my mom was my best friend. My sister was bigger and stronger than me, so I learned to not pick on her. I grew up in uh, Sleepy Eye and went to college at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, and I studied physiology and got my degree in that. I did spend some time in dental school, and I went to Luther Seminary for a year also, and then I went into medicine. I met my wife at college, and she's a veterinarian, and she's an absolute delight and the best thing that ever happened to me. I've been practicing family medicine for 35 years, and I have three children. My two daughters are physicians, and my son is an attorney, and my wife and I are blessed to have six grandchildren. And my life was going along pretty routinely up until about five years ago when someone called and asked me if I would run for the Minnesota Senate, and I declined and said, no, thank you. But I was flattered, and they kept pestering me, and over about a two-month period of time, my wife and I came to see that perhaps it would be best if I did run. So I spent uh, four years in the Senate and I was able to get some things done. 
but I also saw the the dark tawdry side of politics. Tremendous amount of wasted time. Too little intellectual curiosity. Too much. Play it by the rules of seniority and and backroom meetings. So after four years, uh, my wife and I both had some concerns about uh, our future health. Um, my wife had to have several surgeries. I'd had a back surgery. I had a knee replaced. And we decided to not run for re-election. Fast forward to a year ago, I was sent an email from the Minnesota Department of Health instructing me as to how death certificates should be filled out if COVID-19 was involved. This was something new. I've been doing death certificates for 35 years as a physician, and I've never seen anything like that. We were basically being encouraged to use COVID-19 as a cause of death, even if it wasn't. And we've had numerous national leaders speak to that issue over the last year, and they've acknowledged that just because it says COVID-19 on the death certificate doesn't mean someone died of COVID-19, which to me sounds like lunacy. But that's really how my life changed dramatically as all of a sudden I was on national news and BBC and in London, and I guess I was part of some Moscow Today news program at one time, and my videos and the clips were being cut and pasted all over, and I had no control over it. People were asking me, why am I on such and such a program? And I'd never heard of it. So my life changed quite a bit. And why why do you think um, you kind of pointing out that it's lunacy to mark deaths that are not caused by COVID as COVID deaths? Why do you think there's such a controversy over that? I don't like to conjecture what someone else's motivation is. Certainly, in many countries, and the U.S. is one of them, following the money will get you a lot of answers. And we do know that early on, our Medicare system did decide to pay a premium for Medicare patients who were in the hospital with COVID-19. So instead of getting perhaps $5,000 for a hospitalization, the hospital might get $13,000 if COVID-19 were involved. And we were told that we did not have to have a laboratory test confirming COVID-19. If we had evidence of cough, shortness of breath, fever, and clinical signs of COVID-19, and maybe some community transmission, so from an epidemiologic perspective, we had evidence that we could go ahead and diagnose presumptive COVID-19. But our country also, through the CDC and some of the coding agencies, had elected to not, if you will, give official credence to presumptive COVID-19. So if a physician diagnosed presumptive or probable COVID-19, it defaulted into the diagnosis of COVID-19. In coding language, instead of it being U07.2, which is probable COVID-19, it was flipped automatically to U07.1, which is COVID-19, with the assumption that there would have been a positive laboratory test. This was problematic in many ways. Some people, I think, are confused about death certificates. Having a death certificate, say COVID-19, doesn't get a physician or a hospital or anybody any more money. That's all in the hospital side of things. But the death certificates, it seemed like one of the motivations might have been that if you had enough numbers, 
you could justify some of the policies you were putting in place. And this was problematic for me very much because the idea of, in many situations, politically and, and capriciously electing to close down this, this, and this business, but letting this, this, and this business stay open without really any transparent scientific analysis mm. made no sense. And we we saw countries and states in Minnesota respond to the COVID-19 pandemic in different ways. But one of the best ways to do these kinds of draconian measures would be to have numbers to support you. And if those numbers were death counts, then you could certainly see where you could have mayors and governors say, well, any of these deaths that occurred that we didn't know why, we're just saying they're COVID-19. We saw dramatic abuses. And this is never the kind of thing we do in science. But I think one of the things we really learned in our country was there's a huge difference between science and political science. Right. And I think that's part of what went on. Well, I think it's not just happening in, in the U.S. I think uh, in a lot of places... First of all, the I think before we had a PCR test that was widely available, a lot of diagnoses were happening simply on symptoms. and But even furthermore, so you're a doctor, maybe you can speak to this. The PCR test that is used to diagnose COVID. Now, I personally have used a quantitative PCR test called the GI map with uh, a few of my clients. And we are, we were taught at the very start when using this test is that there's a very high probability for false positives. I've seen tons of potentially pathogenic organisms on the test that were discovered in minute amounts where, and we know that just because a, an organism is inside your body does not mean it's actually doing you any harm. So what is your kind of view as a doctor of how we've been using the PCR test? Well, I think that Dr. Fauci, who I have certainly not agreed with everything he has shared, um, he has said that with the PCR test, if you're going to run a cycle threshold of 45 times and you get a positive test, you may be doing nothing other than detecting dead nucleotides. And I think he's correct. It's sort of like if I'm in the office and I want to confirm that my patient can hear. Well, if I give a hearing test to that patient and I start out at 20 decibels and they can't hear that tone and I go to 40 and to 60. And when we go up in decibels, we're going up exponentially. But if I do this, if finally my patient says, yes, I hear that, but I was at 130 decibels. That's the sound of a 747 jet taking off right next to you. And I would say, ah, you can hear. Well, that would be ridiculous. That's what we're basically doing when we run PCR thresholds that high at 45. We can certainly do it where we can find something. But routinely, if you're going to look for infectiousness, a, a cycle threshold of 25, would be more typical, more reliable. That was why in some of our New England states, studies had been done. And I think in one specific study, there were something like a thousand positive cases. And the epidemiology folks who did the analysis said that it was very likely that 850 of those thousand did not actually have COVID-19. They simply had a false positive PCR test. This kind 
of distortion of data has never really been a part of medical science before, but it seemed to take over the entire world. And I think we had a lot of people who knew a very small amount, and they never really dove into it before. But with COVID-19, it captured our entire world. And so people that perhaps maybe should have spent a little bit more time learning became very, very boisterous and vocal. And so we've had this social media tantrum and people bickering. And I mean, I've had physicians come after me on social media saying, I shouldn't be able to practice medicine because I said this, or I said this. I've been teaching at the medical school for 35 years. Infectious disease has been a big part of my life. (laughs) It was astonishing. And the fact, Christian, that it was going on all over the world sometimes was lost on Americans. Sometimes in the U.S., we put blinders on and we think that all that really matters is what goes on in our borders. And we fail to get a big perspective. But what you said earlier, it's, it's, in, it's all over the world. And if we would actually realize that, I think that would even more powerfully intensify our concern that what's going on in the U.S. is indeed happening everywhere. And we're all in this together. So what would you recommend for like the, the, the common man, let's say, not finding this information out? What would one do to, to actually do something to improve the state of affairs? Well, I think humans by our very nature, we, we want to be relevant. And I think one of the best ways to be relevant is we have to stay engaged. And as we stay engaged, we also have to expand what we're being exposed to. So if we're simply going to our routine three or four news sources a day, we need to move outside of that. We need to get both sides. You can actually just put in the Google box, media bias. And there's some pretty nice charts that'll show that this source leans left, this one's leans right, this one is far left, this is far right. And I think we should try to pick some on both sides. So I think that we should expand what we're exposed to. And then I think that we need to, we need to trust ourselves. We need to trust ourselves that even though we may not have certain letters behind our name, that doesn't mean that we're not able to digest this information and make good conclusions. Some of the most notable spokespeople in this COVID-19 don't have MD behind their name, but they're a lot smarter than I am. And I think we need to recognize that. To me, those are the three big things we need to do. And then I would hope that I would hope that as a as a world we can recognize that we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued from the corrupt, fraudulent, indefensible comments made by bureaucrats and politicians. It's hard to ferret out which is true and which is false. But we need to as much as possible, hold people accountable. And I think we need to be rescued from some of the draconian policies our politicians have put in place. There is no real evidence that school closures has done anything good, and the collateral damage is immense. And there's no real evidence that locking down a society. In Great Britain, in World War I and World War II, the kinds of measures that have been put in place for COVID-19 were not a part of their response in World War I and World War II. This isn't the greatest incursion into our rights in peacetime. 
This is the greatest incursion into our rights in wartime. London was being bombed, and they didn't have the kind of measures that we put in with COVID-19. So I think that we have to stay engaged. We have to play our part. We have to recognize that we're in trouble. We have to hold people accountable. We have to be prepared to rescue ourselves. We have had across the globe an expansion of power by executive fiat like never before. And then lastly, we will see the reward if we do these things. We are going to get to a place of hope. Christian, it's been one of my concerns that one thing we haven't addressed or we haven't been willing to deal with as a society around the world is dying. It seems like dying is sort of pushed off to the side. I think COVID-19 has blown open the doors. In our country, we've seen a lot of long-term care facilities locked down because of COVID-19 disease being in the facility, oftentimes as a result of political decisions. But once that locked down facility took place, then the residents were locked in and the families were locked out. And we saw people in their last year of life dying horrifically. These kinds of things happened because we were literally frightened to death by COVID, a disease that by all intents and purposes, 99.9% of people would travel through. In Minnesota, we have a greater chance on a daily basis of dying of some kind of accident than we do of COVID-19. And yet we were paralyzed with fear and people played on that fear. And the fear mongering has been immense. So true. 99.98%. It's literally, you, you have a bigger chance of tripping down the stairs today than um, when you say we need to hold these people accountable. How does one individual do that? What can we do? Well, I'm not certain that one individual can. I certainly cannot. But I think that in legislatures, in parliaments, we can create an audit task force. I frankly think that we should be auditing the death certificates now. In Minnesota, I did a, a couple of exercises in audits, and it was relatively straightforward. And we could see right away that somewhere between 20 and 30% of the death certificates did not have COVID-19 listed as the underlying cause of death, which by definition would mean that it was not a COVID-19 death, but nevertheless, it was classified that way. So I think we're going to have to use task forces and audits. I'm, I'm optimistic and encouraged that some of the mainstream media in the U.S., they're starting to uncover some of this. They're saying, what were the lessons learned? Deborah Burks has come out recently and said that uh, the first 100,000 deaths in the U.S. from COVID may have been unavoidable, but after that, it was because of the leadership of President Trump. And yet, Deborah, Dr. Burks was one of the people who a year ago complimented President Trump for following the data, paying attention to the statistics. And President Trump was listening to her, and she was advising him, and she was complimenting on him on taking her advice and things like that. And now, a year later, she comes out and says, no, this isn't true. Even the Democrats in our country are saying, we're not buying what Dr. Burks is selling. She enabled much of this, and now she wants to skate from this. She was the same person who said, nobody would die with it. You would die of it. If you had it there, 
It was the cause of death. She's a doctor. That was lunacy. She should be held accountable. Mm. What about the vaccine? Though the, the, There's a lot of people that have concerns about the safety and uh, the potentially about the testing of the vaccine. Can you tell us what testing has been done on these vaccines out there? Are they, are they a little bit rushed? Well, there's no question that we've never had a vaccine created in less than a year that was being administered to humans. So was it on a fast track, to be sure? And I think that we can all be kind enough to one another to recognize that we might have different perspectives. For some people, it may be, hallelujah, we have the vaccine. For other people, it may be, hold it. How can we take three to four years normally, and this time we did it in less than a year and feel good about it? I'm not a vaccine manufacturer expert by any stretch, but I certainly pay attention. One of the things that I think happened was when President Trump put this on Operation Warp Speed, he gave the manufacturers permission to be doing, if you will, portions of the process at the same time. So instead of it being done in a series manner, it was being done in a parallel manner. So there may have been three tracks of testing going on at one time, while normally it might have been one, one, one. And I think that sped things up a lot. It also was a technology that had been utilized and experimented with for some time. So I think that's how we got to where we got. I think the numbers indicate that there's strong efficacy from these vaccines, and that's terrific. But nevertheless, because in America we have strong protection and indemnification for manufacturers of vaccines, there's a great deal of skepticism on the part of America before COVID-19. We had a rotavirus vaccine caused some infant deaths uh, 20 years ago and it was pulled from the market. Our Lyme disease vaccine was pulled from the market in 1976 the swine flu vaccine program was suspended. So it hasn't been all you know, candy canes and snowflakes falling from the sky. And I think this is why people are concerned. They're concerned that adverse events, significant illnesses, even deaths are not necessarily being reported or tabulated. I don't think those are unreasonable concerns. On the other hand, the vaccine is a game changer. It takes us from perhaps being a half or two-thirds of the way towards the herd immunity that we pursue, getting us all the way. I don't buy into the way Dr. Fauci handled himself in regards to what would the herd immunity number or threshold most likely be. He basically moved from 60 to 65 to 70 to 75 to 80 to 85. He sounded like an auctioneer. And then he told us later on that he did that because he felt that the that the population wasn't quite ready for the real truth. And so he's decided to be the master of all. And he would dole out his wisdom in snippets, if you will. That's unconscionable, and he should be held accountable. But getting back to the vaccine, I think the vaccine is a wonderful advance. And I think that everybody who wants it should be able to get it. But I would remind people that it has to be about choice. And I would also remind people that in the early stages of analyzing the data, when Moderna and Pfizer and the FDA were sitting down to review the trial data, the original conclusions were, okay, it would be best to not vaccinate pregnant women, kids under the age of 16, women who are sexually active without contraception, and people who had had the disease and recovered. Those four groups were not going to be vaccinated. 
Fast forward a couple of months and all of a sudden, everybody but the kids will be vaccinated. I'm very concerned about the fact that we've been vaccinating pregnant women in their first trimester of life. I don't know how this is going to play out. I understand the science behind it. I understand that the mRNA gets into the cytoplasma, uses the ribosomes to create the protein that mimics the spike protein antigen. I get that. But I'm still concerned. We're talking about a multi-celled fetus growing and having an impact on it that we've never studied. So for someone to look me in the eye and saying that I'm being a conspiracy theorist because I have this concern, I scoff at them and say, we'll just see, we'll play the long game. We'll watch what happens. Yeah, that's exactly what I was uh, talking about. The These trials, I know for a lot of kids' vaccines are 42-day trials or whatever, six-week trials where you cannot you cannot understand what the long-term ramifications of this now warped immune response can be. You just cannot. You don't know how a complex immune system will react in the long term. So, you know, you can't even give pregnant women most herbs, never mind, you know, something completely novel. So, yeah, I completely agree that it, it is a little bit um, terrifying. Uh, but are have there been any studies done on pregnant women? With the they were not vaccine. part of the trial. No, the, the trials, pregnant women were excluded, as were people who had had the disease and recovered. These were people that were excluded from the trials. And all of a sudden, they're being included in the vaccination group. That's terrifying. What would, what would you, I, I know you're very much pro-choice on the matter, but what would you do if there were, do you, see, you saw that there are plans to make the vaccine mandatory? I think that's immoral. I think that why don't we then have the government tell us what chemotherapy regimen we have to choose for our colon cancer or our breast cancer? Where does it stop? If we're going to have government tell us what we have to inject into our bodies, where does it stop? People need to realize a vaccine is not like getting a shot of penicillin because you've got strep throat. A vaccine is something that you're injecting or taking orally or nasally into the body, and you're hoping for an immune response that will achieve the desired outcome. That doesn't mean it happens. That's exactly what we do when we give chemotherapy to someone with cancer, is we're hoping for a specific response. Frequently, the response that we're looking for through chemotherapy agents for cancer invokes an immune response, just like a vaccine is. So the idea that government can tell me that even though I've had COVID-19, even though I've been donating my plasma so that patients who are struggling with COVID-19 can use my plasma as a convalescent plasma, they're telling me that I have to be vaccinated. And now we're going the next step. We're saying that if I refuse, I may not have the same rights and privileges as the person who says yes to it. The concept of an immunity passport. This is wrong in so many ways. We are going to look back on these days sometime down the road and say, what were we thinking? Yeah, that's beyond immoral, beyond Orwellian, I should say. Yeah. Yes. Um, one final question. I know you're, you're very pressed for time. You're a busy guy running for governor. Um, what, what, what would you say about the fact that th this past year or more, 
we there's been a ton of fear mongering in the media and yet very little advice on how to boost or you know maintain our immune system how to stay healthy practices to reduce stress because we know stress is very um detrimental to one's health what would you say about the lack of such advice in the media and only fear mongering that's a great question i think christian that's another one of these measures where accountability will have to take place honestly it was almost as if we as humans were advised to just lie down and take whatever got dished out vitamin c and d and zinc quercetin many things can be done naturally and helpfully and you're right stress does compromise our ability to fight off and ward off disease but even beyond that in some countries the U.S. included, the idea of not letting physicians work with patients to determine whether or not they wanted to use ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or a steroid such as budesonide, these kinds of governmental interferences and at times prohibitions are dastardly. How could they possibly think that they could or should do this? And yet they did this. I think that we've had Hundreds of thousands of people die in our world that didn't need to die. We were totally off base at the beginning of this COVID pandemic. We quickly found out that basically being put on a ventilator was very likely an 80% death sentence. We've had to learn quickly along the way. But the idea of politicians and bureaucrats getting in the way of physicians and patients having an honest conversation about what they would like to try. 30 to 40% of physician prescribing in the United States is off-label. We give a drug for something other than what it was originally indicated for. And that's okay because once the drug is past the muster of being safe and effective for something, it gets on the market. And we're allowed to do that. An easy example is a drug called Flomax, which was originally released to shrink the prostate in men so they could pee better. But it actually does seem to help in allowing people to spontaneously pass kidney stones. It was never indicated for that. But if someone's trying to pass a kidney stone, we're frequently prescribing Flomax. And that's off-label. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as we explain it to the patient. The patient and doctor should have some authority to make decisions about their health. Government intrusion into our health, in my view, has now put us in a position where we need to create another amendment to our constitution, guaranteeing health freedom. Yeah, I I, I think so. I think you're right. Uh, Dr. Jensen, can you tell folks where they can find you on the internet before we wrap up? Thank you very much, Christian. I am running for governor of the state of Minnesota. I think that we are not on on a sustainable pathway in the state. Uh, We have seen draconian measures uh, meted out to the public And we're a very diverse state. We have rural areas and metropolitan areas, and one size fits all just doesn't work. You can find me at Dr. Scott Jensen, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. That's our, our website. And on our website, we have a launch video where we try to create a sharp contrast between what has been done and what should have been done. And if people could do that and give us feedback, we'd appreciate it very much. Now more than ever, across the globe, we need people, Christian, like you and like me, rising up and 
we need a groundswell of people saying, no, we are not going to let our bureaucrats and our politicians take over our lives and intrude on our basic freedoms. We are in a dangerous place. Yeah, we locked down like cattle. Yes, it's yeah, it it it, it cannot go on. Um, uh, Doctor Jensen, thank you so much for your time. I will have all those all the links to your social media, to your website, um, with the show notes, all the wherever the episode is posted, so folks can learn more about you and your work. Thank you for the work that you do, and best of luck with um, running for governor. Thank you, and Christian, thank you for having me on.